forces uh, didn't materialize, so he still had the same problems that he had before this engagement. The other thing that was probably a little bit more uh, nebulous to qualify, but still very, very real, was the lift in morale for the Americans. Here was a group of citizen soldiers who had signed up to fight to protect Bennington, after which they were going to go home, and they did, and they had just prevailed over members from the two strongest armies in the world. Hello, my name is Phyllis Chapman. I am a trustee with the Friends of the Bennington Battlefield, which is located in the town of Hoosick, just over the Vermont-New York state line. We are a group that uh, supports and helps with interpretation of the Bennington Battlefield, which is a New York state historic site. It is the site where an important small but important battle took place in the summer of 1777. It was part of the campaign from General John Burgoyne as he traveled that summer through the Champlain Valley, down through Lake George and Fort Edward, with the initial intent of meeting up with uh, the army of General Howe down in New York City. The idea was to mass a large army in the state of New York and pursue the war from there. In August of 1777, General Burgoyne in Fort Edward was facing serious supply problems. He had to get all of his supplies from Canada at this point and was desperately in need of ammunition, food, but particularly horses. Hmm. Uh, under Burgoyne, they had a large contingent of uh, German soldiers that were leased soldiers, and among them were dragoons under General Friedrich uh, Reisdiesel, and they were unmounted. So they decided that they would try to do a sweep through Vermont and Massachusetts at one point to try to forage for themselves and get some horses, cattle, and then bring them back. It was a tall order. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. The 250th anniversary of the founding of the United States of America will be celebrated starting in 2026, I believe. But some events are already underway, some commemorations. The folks in the area of Bennington, Vermont, for example, are getting ready and, in fact, will hold programs about the Battle of Bennington uh, starting this year. And we're on the line with Phyllis Chapman of the Friends of the Bennington uh, Battlefield. Uh, You've already established this, but I guess I can't resist the phrase. It's not a trick question. Where was the Battle of Bennington fought? Battle of Bennington was actually fought in the town of Hoosick, which is in New York State. It is roughly four miles from the border of Vermont and New York State, which at the time was considered rather fluid by people on both sides. But it was actually held in this little hamlet of Walloonsack rather than Bennington, although Bennington was the original objective. That's where the, the British troops and the Hessian troops were going, was Bennington. Correct. They were looking to replenish supplies that were in short order up in Fort Edward, and they had been told, after initially thinking they would make a wider sweep through Vermont and New Hampshire and around through Massachusetts, 
They'd been told by intelligence sources that there was close by in the hamlet of Bennington a storehouse full of what they needed, and that was only 30 miles from Fort Edward. So it was definitely looked to be a much easier, more attainable, and softer target to get what they wanted. Burgoyne was also rather uh, tired of being harassed by what uh, he saw as a gathering storm on his left. As he had come down from Champlain, the colonists and inhabitants of the region certainly couldn't stop him, but they had made his uh, life difficult by throwing trees down in the roads and uh, harassing him here and there with uh, little skirmishes and so on. So he was anxious to also show a sign of strength to these rebellious people that he saw on his left flank. So the idea was to send out a detachment from his main army under Mm -hmm. Colonel Friedrich Baum and go with about 1,000 soldiers to go to Bennington, capture the supplies, and bring them back to Fort Edward, Hmm. as well as rounding up horses and cattle. Now, when they uh, approached what would become the the battlefield, uh, the British, or the the Burgoyne's army, uh, suffered kind of from poor intelligence, right? They didn't think that this area would have a lot of uh, rebel soldiers, but it did. Interesting to follow up in a little bit more detail about what they believed and what they had been told, <laughs> because there were some serious discrepancies right from the beginning. There were those within Burgoyne's army who questioned why he sent Baum, for example, uh, in that Baum was a German soldier, uh, had had experience in Europe, but none fighting here in America of leading men. He spoke not a word of English. He'd also been assured, Burgoyne had been assured by people like uh, Philip Skane from Skanesboro up near Whitehall, that the area was teeming with loyalists and he could collect numbers of them uh, with bomb as he traveled here to Bennington. Uh, He also was not particularly clear, evidently, with his instructions to bomb. On the one hand, Baum was told to go and collect these supplies, uh, engage the enemy if necessary, but on no terms was he to risk himself by uh, acting very proactively towards the rebels. So there were some problems that they didn't anticipate Hmm. right from the beginning. So Friedrich Baum is the officer in charge, if you will, of Burgoyne's detachment that's coming to uh, get the supplies out of Bennington. Who were all the uh, rebels who were there? Uh, they were led by like three groups, right? There was John Stark as a officer, Seth Warner, and also the Green Mountain Boys. Right, right. John Stark was from New Hampshire, and he was approached in July from the New Hampshire General Court to come to the aid of Bennington. John Stark was a veteran of the Continental Army. He had fought with distinction at the Battle of Bunker Hill, at Trenton and Princeton. And then, as it has happened with some generals and other officers, he was passed over for a promotion, so he went back home to New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. He was placed in charge of the rescue mission for Bennington, 
with the stipulation that there would be no continental interference, that he would have charge over his own men. He had such a reputation in his region that calling out for volunteers for a militia to defend Pennington resulted in over a 1,000 men signing up in six days. And that's quite an accomplishment in an area that was pretty sparsely populated. After that, he collected his men, and they went to Manchester, Vermont, where he started organizing the people he had. At the same time, Massachusetts, uh, particularly Berkshire County, and other areas of Vermont began collecting militia and volunteers to join up with Stark and defend Bennington. They knew the British were coming, if you will, or the Burgoyne's army was coming. Yes, they had indeed. In fact, they were notified by Ira Allen, who is brother to Ethan Allen, and was instrumental in uh, establishing and and, um, setting up Vermont as an independent republic that previous June 1777. He went to New Hampshire's general court and told them that if Vermont ceases to become the frontier because it's taken over by the British, you, New Hampshire, will become the frontier. So there was a strong motivation for New Hampshire to come to the aid of Bennington. And there was a certain amount of tension, wasn't there, between the people who lived in Vermont and and those of us who lived in, or those who lived in New York's, uh, the colony of New York. I mean, Vermont wanted to be an, an independent country or an independent state anyway. Yes, that absolutely true, and those uh, conflicts had a long history beginning uh, back in the mid-1700s. Basically, Vermont was an area that was claimed by both what were then colonies. New Hampshire claimed it, and New York claimed it. And Benning Wentworth, for whom the town is named, was the governor of New Hampshire at this time in 1749, He needed to raise money. Apparently, he was personally in debt. Um, So he began selling land grants in this area that's now known as Vermont. And many people bought them and settled here. Unfortunately, the governor at the time, Colden, believed that Vermont belonged to New York. And some people found themselves in the unfortunate position of occupying land that somebody told them, I've bought this land, and it's mine. So there was a great deal of friction. The um, battle itself was delayed by weather. What what happened there? Yes. Baum made it to uh, a little hamlet called Sankoik on the 14th and was surprised to find more what he termed rebel soldiers than he expected. He sent back for reinforcements at a mill saying that he wrote his note to Burgoyne on the head of a barrel. They took up positions about two miles from there, but the next day, which was August 15th, it rained torrentially. It was midsummer, it was very hot, it was very humid, and it was very wet. And most people are well aware that if you're firing muskets with flintlocks, you don't fire in the rain because of keeping the powder dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had also been quite rainy that summer, and the roads around here, mostly being dirt, would be turned into bogs. They were trying to bring cannon. Uh, Bomb brought two three-pounder cannons with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a great deal of trouble. Their ammunition wagons were tipping over. 
and they would have to write it. So it was very, very slow going to even get here. And then the rain uh, continued and did not cooperate. So no fighting was done on the 15th. And then the day, the next day, the 16th, was when they were able to have the battle. And the men the... were not prepared for that kind of weather. They were dressed for European. They had heavy wool clothing. The uh, dragoons were wearing heavy boots with spurs and carrying broadswords that weighed about 10 to 12 pounds apiece. So it was hard going. Was the battle an attack by the... Uh, rebels on Burgoyne's uh, army, or, or how did that come to be? The British and Germans had basically spread their army quite thin. They uh, landed near the Wollumsack uh, River, and Baum set up his tent headquarters there and his two cannon. He sent some of the uh, Hessian grenadiers to the top of a very steep hill right behind him, where they probably on the rainy day, threw up a uh, rail and mud breastworks to guard Baum's rear. He had other soldiers down near the river with him. His main body of troops were down there with him right on the banks of the Wollumsack. On the other side of the Wollumsack, across the small bridge that was there, was another group of about 200 loyalist soldiers that had been gathered by a local loyalist uh, Francis Pfister. They had also put up some temporary breastworks and were waiting there. Now Stark, having intelligence as to where they were, decided to divide up his army. He had about 2,500 men at that point, so he outnumbered Baum. And he sent them out uh, on the 16th to follow some rather circuitous routes to come up behind Baum and attack him from behind. Uh, in particular, there was a Lieutenant Colonel Nichols who uh, was moving 250 men towards the north and around on Baum's left. Mm-hmm. A Colonel Herrick moved about 300 in a wide arc to the south, and they were to meet behind Baum and shoot a musket to signal that they had uh, connected. So at 3 o'clock, they fired their musket. Colonel Stickney and Hobart went towards the Loyalist redoubt on the other side of the river, took that out, and then Stark, with his men, attacked the main force on the other side of the river where Baum was. In the battle, Baum himself was killed. Yes, he was. He was wounded in the abdomen. Uh, He was in that area of the battlefield, which is right on the river bank, and probably saw some of the hottest, most uh, extended fighting right there. The uh, Tories that had survived the redoubt ran towards that area, crossed the river. Many of them were shot on the riverbank. And since they had deserted their fort on this high rise on the other side of the river, the rebels, the uh, colonists, ran towards the main body of troops, they were repelled a couple of times, but what happened was that it devolved down into basically hand-to-hand combat. Muskets were used as clubs. There weren't many of the rebels that had bayonets, but those who did used them. But uh, Baum was mortally wounded in the abdomen and then was taken to a nearby cabin where he died. This uh, force that Burgoyne had sent has some British soldiers, the Hessian soldiers, and you said uh, Tories, or loyalists, and also some Native Americans, right? Yes. 
he brought, uh, Burgoyne had brought with him, beginning in June, he had brought a sizable contingent of Native Americans from the St. Lawrence area. And the, the Native Americans play interesting roles in the revolution in that they have their own, and rightfully so, they have their own motivations for fighting anyone. They were tending to inclined towards British support quite often because of resentment towards colonists coming in and taking their land and saying, we live here now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the Native Americans were essential to Burgoyne and any of them because of their uh, way of escaping, their way of fighting in a stealth mode. They could uh, come out from nowhere, attack, and then disappear quickly. Mm -hmm. And because they had those skills, they were excellent at intelligence gathering and uh, spying to find out what was actually going on. I have been told that uh, it was possible that some of the Native American warriors, through an interpreter, advised Baum not to go further, but to withdraw because they had seen the lay of the land. The patriot colonists, rebels, whatever you want to call them, those fighters, had had experienced some of them in the Seven Years' War, what we call French and Indian War, and many of them fought with the same tactics that uh, Native Americans did. The the British and the Germans were complaining you'd see uh, a fighter hide behind a tree, take a shot, and then disappear. It was very effective against the disciplined, uh, conventional-type tactics that uh, the British and Germans used, and it uh, did create quite a lot of fear in those fighters uh, that were trying to fight in a way that they were not accustomed to. Now, after the battle was joined and and then Stark's men are are winning, they uh, enveloped Baum's position, I uh, read in one of the uh, online accounts, took many prisoners, killed Baum, but then reinforcements for both sides arrived. What happened then? That was what we call the second phase of the battle. And uh, the first phase went fairly quickly. Uh, It started at 3, and probably by 5 it was beginning to wrap up. I mentioned before that uh, Baum had written four reinforcements to Burgoyne, uh, and they did in fact come under the leadership of um, Colonel Brayman, another German, who came with two more cannon. These were six-pounders and about 600 other soldiers, again, all German. Their progress was no faster than bombs had been, and uh, the rain had definitely slowed them down. But they arrived on the scene uh, in that uh, mill area there where bomb had written the note uh, that late that afternoon, probably around 4 or 5 o'clock, not aware that the main first phase of the battle was already over, but they continued, and about a mile south of where most of the main battle had taken place, they encountered the rebel troops, who were somewhat scattered by this point. There was a lot of private looting going on. They'd also been having their share of water laced with rum, so some of them were more than a little drunk. However, when uh, Brayman lined up and started aiming his cannon at them, they very quickly did manage to form a skirmish line to hold the fort, to say, a little bit. But at that moment, the Green Mountain Boys, who was Seth Warner's militia, 
had arrived from Manchester, Vermont. They were late on the scene because they had been involved in the Battle of Hubberton a few weeks before, and they had been recouping in in, uh, Manchester. But they arrived on the scene just in time. They were fresh troops. They supported the fighters, the uh, rebels that were dealing with the second wave of Germans, and they very quickly overwhelmed them as well. Uh, There have been accounts that said that uh, at one point when the Germans were beginning to flee, that uh, the rebels turned their own cannon on them and fired it. Uh, But they did escape uh, some of them. Baum's losses were were very, very heavy in both phases of the battle, uh, at least a thousand perhaps more. Uh, So very few of those uh, British and German fighters escaped. What did this do to Burgoyne's larger army? It was a significant setback for him. First, he he lost about 15% of his men at this engagement. It's not a huge number, but at this point in his campaign, it was significant. He was very far away from his supply lines. He had started out with about seven or 8,000 men in June, but as he had come down pretty much unscathed through the Champlain Valley, through Lake George and all that, each time he took over a, a spot or occupied a spot, such as Fort Ticonderoga, he had to leave men there to hold it. So he was down in his numbers. He obviously did not get the relief in supplies that he had hoped for. Uh, The horses uh, didn't materialize, so he still had the same problems that he had before this engagement. And the other thing that uh, was probably a little bit more uh, nebulous to qualify, but still very, very real, was the lift in morale for the Americans. Here was a group of citizen soldiers who had signed up to fight to protect Bennington, after which they were going to go home, and they did, and they had just prevailed over members from the two strongest armies in the world at the point, at that point. So it is believed by many that this was a significant step that led towards the eventual defeat of Burgoyne at Saratoga over the two battles, the Battle of Freeman's Farm and Bemis Heights in Saratoga, after which Burgoyne's defeat, the French decided to become allies Mm -hmm. of the American cause, and that was extremely important in our ultimate success. Phyllis Chapman uh, joins us. She's with the Friends of the Bennington Battlefield. There's a monument to the battle. Where's the monument? The monument is in Bennington. It was the uh, result of people in Bennington very early after the war, taking a great deal of pride in their success at Bennington. And as early as the 1850s, the town was thinking about uh, erecting a monument. It's interesting that the Battle of Bennington and the victory there had been celebrated by people in Bennington as early as the following year, 1778 took a great deal of pride in it, and usually the celebrations were taking place in Bennington itself. Orations, which was common at the time, parades, tableaus, and so on. So every year since the battle, there's been some kind of commemoration or marking of the battle. They talked about putting up a monument in the 1850s. The funding wasn't available, 
But in the 1870s, under the leadership of Highland Hall, who was a governor of Vermont at one point, uh, they started a fundraising campaign to mm. raise funds to erect a monument in Bennington. Uh, the sentiment for these types of things was very strong in the 1870s because we had just had the centennial of the Declaration of Independence. So the monument was erected and finished in 1892 on the location that uh, is supposed to be where the actual warehouse of supplies that uh, Baum and Burgoyne Uh wanted to capture. So that is where the monument stands today. Phyllis Chapman uh, of the Friends of the Bennington Battlefield with us. You're having observances of the Battle of Bennington starting this year. Maybe you've been having them all all along, but you have some things going on this year. Unfortunately, uh, the timing of the debut of our podcast sort of um, makes it hard to promote one of your big events, which is in late May, I believe, because that's when we're uh, going to be uh, debuting the um, podcast. But will you have observances for the next several years? Yes. Uh, Well, we have had observances here for quite some time, too, in um, New York State. The actual Battlefield Park is a New York State historic site, and that was created back in 1927, which would have been the 150th of the battle. Uh, So there have been commemorations over the years. The last few years, the Friends have held a yearly commemoration of the battle on August 16th. It's a small ceremony, but it... uh, gets uh, public attention to the battle. We commemorate those who fought there. Sometimes uh, students are involved. This year, we are taking a little bit different approach in that the 250th anniversary Mm -hmm. of the battle itself is coming up in 2027. And we are planning events that are designed to Mm -hmm. increase public and especially local awareness of the battle, of its importance, and to engage with the actual property uh, rather than saying, oh, is there a battlefield somewhere? The first uh, project that we have is for May 20th, as you mentioned. We are having a history and heritage fair in the village of Hoosick Falls. We have a large building there, the Hoosick Falls Armory. We have invited historical societies, local historic sites, uh, museums, reenactors, both Revolutionary War and Civil War, and our own friends to present exhibits, demonstrations, displays, activities for kids relating to our local history. The town of Hoosick at one time had a trolley uh, line that ran from the village up to the Bennington Battlefield, and many people at the turn of the last century would take the trolley and go up there for an afternoon picnic. So we have hired two trolley buses that will take people from the armory up to the battlefield and back on a loop, so to speak, to recreate that ambiance of the turn of the century, uh, looking at the site as a recreational place as well as covering the history of the uh, area. The second event that we're holding will be at the battlefield itself on July 15th. It's a Saturday. And that will be our family day and community picnic. We're inviting people to come bring their picnics, but we'll also have food trucks there, 
Again, we'll have displays and activities for children. We'll have reenactors there, and we will have live music of people uh, performing 18th century music and leading us in 18th century dances, which will be quite interesting. The last event of the season is taking place the first weekend in August. It is in the works. It is a live-action production called Voices of the Fallen, in which we will have actors historically costumed or correctly costumed who will tell of their accounts as experiences of soldiers in the battle and also what happened to them. And that will involve soldiers from both sides. All right. Well, Phyllis Chapman, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, Phyllis Chapman of the Friends of the Bennington Battlefield. You can donate to support the Historian's Podcast. Check our website at bobcudmore.com. This has been the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.